My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week, someone you guys have been asking for for a long time. We finally got together in the studio tonight, George Edward Hand IV. He's a retired Master Sergeant of the U.S. Army. He served in the 7th and 1st Special Forces along with Delta. That's right, the Delta Force. Post-military George, known to most as GEO, worked for 16 years as a subcontractor to the U.S. Department of Energy on the nation's nuclear test site north of Las Vegas, Nevada. He has been one of the foremost strategists of developing hunt methodology for counter-human trafficking, serving in capacity as intelligence analyst and team leader. He's also a master cabinet-grade woodworker and a master photographer. Additionally, he has military ratings in seven foreign languages. But above all, his children are his proudest accomplishments. Tonight in the studio, George Hand IV. Welcome, sir. Thank you, DJ. It's really great being here for the first time. Yeah, I am uh, really looking forward to this. We have so much to talk about. Uh, we're mainly going to focus on Brothers of the Cloth, your new book, but we're going to take a little time to talk about Death Waits in the Dark, some history of you, because you have such a full and rich history and a story with not only the U.S. Army, but with everything that you've done after you left. But I want to start with something that I found out while we were doing research and you and I were texting back and forth together. We found out that we're from the same hometown in Oklahoma. And it's not a very big town. Either. It is not a big town at all. I cannot believe. So we're both from Enid, Oklahoma. Now, that's right. When was the last time you were there? Uh, gosh, it was, it, I think it was. I was 12 years old was the last time I was there. Okay, so it's been quite a while. So yeah. my parents still live there. They still have a farm out in North Enid. Um, the town has not grown a bunch since you lived there, I can promise you that. Uh, oh, good. The only thing keeping it really, like, floating is uh, there's an Air Force base there, a pilot training center there. Yeah, pilot training, Vance Air Force Base. Right. I was born, I was right. born on the base. And so it, um, it really has... I mean, it, it takes up a lot more room than it used to. And it's what really is keeping that city alive uh, with bringing in the pilots and all that kind of stuff. So it was, yeah. uh, I just couldn't believe it because that town of all towns that you could be from, I was, I was simply amazed by it. So let's talk about that for a while, because that's the first thing that you point out in your book is your childhood and, and how you like to be with your friends and what you did to hang out. What was it like uh, growing up in the small town being born on Vance Air Force Base and and just hanging out with your friends. It, it was, I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I nothing ever bad happened, you know, in all those years that I was there. It was, was of course, it was a different time, you know. And uh, it, it sounds corny, but you know, the leaving the doors unlocked and all that stuff. Right. And that's, that's just the way it was there. And um, the fact I had what one evening during dinner, I had a kid walk into our house and he looked around and he goes, 
oh, this ain't my house, you know, and, and walked back out again. You, just, you know, all those military houses look pretty much the same. Absolutely. And the doors are not locked typically. So, um, but I really uh, cherished my childhood there. And it was, you know, we didn't have a, we didn't have a whole lot, uh, you know, but one thing we had was, was security, you know, financial security on from the air force side and physical security, because it's an air base that's has a, a gate and it's, it's controlled, you know, and there's air policemen patrolling around in their pickup trucks. It, uh, Oh, definitely felt safe there. Right. And, and, uh, I, you know, never longed to, like, oh, I want to live in town. Why can't we go live in town? It just didn't appeal to me being in town. When we visited my grandmother, they do live in town. You know, those were short trips that I took out there. And I just didn't mind being at the house. But I wasn't too thrilled with the, just walking around the town. Yeah, uh, and, and I don't think a lot's changed. Like you said, at Vance at that time, and then even up into the 80s and 90s, you know, movie theater on there, there's restaurants on there, there's the O Club, the NCO Club, golf courses. I mean, it's a self-contained city in, its, in and of itself. And you talk about that in the book whenever you had certain days that you rode your bikes and certain days that you went to the rec center and, and certain yeah. days that you did, you know, each day was chosen. We're going to do that this day. We're going to do that this day. And it seems like as your childhood goes that you pretty much had an idea on what you wanted to do in your life. Now, I don't know if that came from living on the military base or just on your own, but what gave you that sense of military and wanting to be there, you know, since very early in life? That's hard to answer because I, I don't know what the driver was, but I definitely knew at a very early, I knew at five years old that I wanted to uh, be in the army, you know, a soldier in the army. And I really loved what my dad did on the air base. And, uh, you know, he'd take me to work here now and then. So I really loved that. And, and uh, I told him I was going to in that I was going to enlist in the air force. And, but I, you know, at heart, what I really wanted to do is uh, enlist in the infantry, army infantry, carry a rifle, you know, and uh, even when I went to the recruiters, uh, you know, I, I was too shy to ask for infantry because to it felt kind of low on the totem pole. You know, you're a grunt. You know, you dig holes and sleep in them. And I and I knew that. And I thought, well, I'll just go ahead and get something a little bit above that. You know, it sounds better. Combat engineer. Yeah, I'll be. A, that's what I'll be. Twelve Bravo is what. It, what it was and in the, the uh, recruiter he flipped through his his register registry and said you know our combat our combat uh engineer slots are all filled we just don't have the need for those he goes but i'll tell you what's open wide open it's the infantry i was <laughs> like ah you can tell me anything you want you know you, you need to fill infantry you'll say everything's closed but the infantry but I was, went, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take the infantry. Yeah. But I was thrilled, you know. Well, I have a, I have a question. With, with as smart as you are, with as many languages as you've learned, and, and you catch on to things quickly, I kind of wondered about the ASVAB and stuff. Like, were they offering you everything, or were, 
you know, uh, you know, like I talked to some guys on here that they go, that's what they offered me. And that was it. Were they giving you the world or were they just telling you they needed infantry filled? They just told me that they needed infantry. But my first year at uh, duty station, the co company commander came down and was offering me uh, OCS. Oh, yeah. An officer, officer candidate score. Uh, and I knew I knew that was a big deal to, to be offered that because uh, I didn't know anybody else that had been. But he offered it to me. And uh, <clears throat> I just thought about it and said, doggone, man. I'm at that same dilemma that I was at a couple of years ago trying to figure out what to do in the Army. And um, I had to admit, yet again, I still wanted to carry a rifle, you know, run up, run with a rifle, dig a hole and sleep in it. Well, I mean, that that uh, I guess it kind of all worked out for the best because, you know, what you wanted to do was what you were ultimately offered. So it doesn't yeah. seem it seemed like you were maybe being watched out for. Now, another thing that I noticed about your childhood was you've always wanted to help people. And you said it in strange ways in the book, but I thought it was interesting. And I want to talk about uh, stupid Ruthie for a minute. Um, <laughs> and the reason I want to say that is because, you know, you, you, you talk about stupid Ruthie in the book and that she couldn't tell the difference in her hands and, and all these different kinds of things. But instead of being mean to her, you took the time to pull her aside and tell her, look, do it like this, do it like this without ever really attracting attention to it, letting anyone know that you did it and not really even letting anyone know that you called you, that you thought stupid Ruthie or anything like that. So where yeah. did, where did that come from of always wanting to help people? Cause that was in kindergarten. I mean, that yeah. you were trying to help her out. Yeah. I mean, that's just cause I knew the difference cause I, I could do it and she could, couldn't do it. And so I thought maybe it wasn't explained. Maybe there's a better way to explain it to her. That's, that's where I came up with the idea. It's like, and I, I didn't know if she was right-handed or left-handed. Then I seen her writing. Okay, it's her right hand. And I said, hey, Ruthie, what, what hand do you use to write with? And she says, you know, raise her right. I said, what hand, what, what hand do you use to eat food at home? What do you eat dinner with? Her? Well, how do you hold your fork? She says, my right hand. Okay, that's your right hand. So if, the, if this is your right, then the other one's got to be your left. So, and that clicked with her. And she went up and told the teacher, you know, I saw her up there raising her right hand and her left hand. And the teacher looking over at me and I was just, you know, embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> but you never really said anything and the teacher didn't, I, I guess she noticed, noticed that you were, you know, a little embarrassed from it and never mentioned it to you. But I thought it was yeah. interesting that even with these people that, that bothered you or were taken away from the class time, because as we all know, reading the book, you didn't like kindergarten in the first place. No. Uh, you thought it was a huge waste of time. Yeah, I really did. Now, as, as you move on through from kindergarten and into elementary school and into high school, did it get better? Did you start liking school? Because I noticed that you started picking up languages and you had a job and stuff like that. So was it better as you got a little older? Yeah, it, it, yeah, because I was finally getting challenged, you know. I mean, in kindergarten, I think we learned how to draw our letters. Uh, and But first grade is really where it, they put it all together, you know, where, we, where I learned to read and write was in the first grade. Right. 
in, in, in kindergarten. I don't know what was up with that. We just learned how to play. You know? <laughs> and sleep. Take yeah, naps. I, yeah. Yeah. We are everybody. You yeah, everyone had those roll up really cool fold up na- uh, mats uh, that fold up in a nice little rectangle and they stack them in the corner. And I, my mother decided that we couldn't afford that. So she was going to make one and she made me this big, black plastic <laughs> mat with duct tape closing the front and the back and it wouldn't ro- it wouldn't fold up it wouldn't do anything so i've just kind of wadded up and stuffed in the, in the corner with you know the real sleeping mats so a- as you get a little older you you start picking up languages now i think your first language that you picked up was spanish correct it was actually it was i was working on chinese Mandarin Chinese before that I stood the summer before school I started working on that oh uh, um yeah and in school there was a that's what I thought that in school you started with Spanish but then on your own you started working on the Mandarin you're you're correct you're correct it was just I found out that the school offered Chinese only because one of their their uh, science teachers had spent some time in Beijing you know, and so I don't know how well he, he's knew Chinese, but I guess it was well enough to offer it as a language. And I asked my mother, can I, if I could take Chinese? And she said, no, no, you, that's too hard. You're, you'll fail and, and end up having to go to summer school. I'm not going to put up with that. I thought, well, sour grapes, man, you know, way to support your church children. So I just checked out a book from the library one on a summer. And every day, every day, sat down and like knocked out these chapters. And you were learning the symbols first, correct? It was like 20, yeah. 20 symbols per lesson, right? Something like that, yeah. And so, so in school, this guy tells you, hey, I, I work at a Chinese restaurant, but I'm getting out of here. Do you want this job? Man, once again, it falls into place for you. You're like, yeah, I'll take that job. <laughs> yeah. So can you? Yeah. Can you tell the story? Because I think it's hilarious about the owner and how he treated you at first, washing the dishes, and you would try and say stuff to him, and he kind of just blew you off, and then it kind of blew up into where you actually learned Chinese. Yeah, it. Uh, you know, I got there and I was, you know, thrilled. I'm gonna learn this. I'm gonna learn Chinese. No one, no one there spoke Chinese. They, they all came from uh, Hong Kong. They speak Hong Kong Cantonese. So, and I had no materials for it um, until, I, until I went to Chinatown uh, and picked up a phrase book, you know, and started working with that as best I could. And the, yeah, the boss, I, I would try to say some of the words, you know, and I'd, I'd ask him, what, how do you say this in Chinese, in Cantonese, you know, all the different foods. And he's like, no, no, go, go wash the dishes, boy. <laughs> Wash the dishes, boy. That's all. They all called me boy, and that's fine. They didn't mean anything derogatory by it. It's just the way the culture was. So I kept trying, and I just kept on my own. You know, I was memorizing these phrases, practicing them as I washed dishes, and uh, the boss. He was still just. He blew me off, you know, all the time, and. Uh, until one day or one night rather the back door rang and uh, that's one of my jobs as the boy 
to answer the back door and it was police was there because because we had called the police on some guys messing with cars breaking in and some stealing some things and uh uh, and that's that, that's how they introduced themselves, and uh, they wanted to speak to the boss. And I said, "Yeah, wait here. I'll go. I'll, I'll go get him." And I went into the kitchen, and I said, "Hey, Kim, you know." And I said, "There's police at the back door in, in Cantonese." And he he just stopped and looked at me, didn't say anything, didn't do anything. And I said, "Back door." I said, "Oh, he still didn't do anything." He walked back there. And, talk to the police, blah, blah. When he came back in, he came, he came right up to me and he says, what did you say? I said, there's police. He says, no, no, Cantonese. What did you say? And I told him, um, and, and, uh, he, he corrected some words in there. He says, okay, listen here. And, and he made me repeat it. And that he started taking me serious from then on. It's just what is what happened there. And he, I stayed at after work every night while he tallied up, you know, the receipts, watched TV and smoked cigarettes. And I would sit behind him with his book and I'd read from it, you know, and he would kind of, he would, he would look, give the appearance like he wasn't paying attention, like he's got, he lost me or something. But there, every now and then he'd stop me and back me up and have me make a correction. And um, so he was showing me how, Hand handwriting rather than print, and uh, teach taught me all the foods back there, and we just uh, tried to keep it where I could. We could be conversational all evening in in the kitchen, but he just couldn't handle it, you know. And he just he just stuck to English. So, was that where you kind of got the bug then for all these languages? Because I heard you in another interview say that. When you learned a new language, it was kind of like when you saw people speaking that language just to each other, it was kind of like a code and you were breaking yeah, that code, code when you learned. And yeah. so was that what gave you the bug was learning this Cantonese? I had it before that, before then, a number of years before then. And when, when we moved from uh, Oklahoma to Arizona, suddenly now there's all, a lot of Mexican children in school and they're again now they're, they're speaking spanish i was like oh, how do they do that and i said i'd ask him hey can you teach me some words they didn't they didn't have time for that but i go do you have a different word for every single english word like, yeah we got all the words <laughs> I go, ah, that's fantastic but since you know they were just uh to themselves mostly and once the uh the school year started and they offered the Spanish. Then I went ahead and took that. And it took it for as many times as I could and worked on it at, at home and, uh, got actually got real proficient at it. When, when I went to seventh special forces group and our team was assigned to, you know, Colombia and then Panama, Colombia, Venezuela. And when I got in country, that's when I really brought it up. It's like a three, three, you know? Well, when you did that, when you were in, first in, uh, special forces, was that, did you just speak Spanish or were there, I, of course you spoke Cantonese, the Spanish, yeah. but were there any other things? Cause I know I took the D lab when I was in the military and I passed it luckily, 
but they didn't offer me anything to take a language. I guess I didn't score that great. Um, other than like the romantic languages, was there any other languages that you spoke while you were first in special forces? Um, uh, I, I pick, I started picking up French because I, uh, I, I, I sort of knew the relationship between French and Spanish. And I thought if I study this French, it's going to help, help my Spanish out. That's all I really cared about. So I got like French in 10 minutes a day and, uh, I went through that pretty thoroughly and I, you know, I was amazed at the, at the, the similarities there were, there were between the two. It was just really interesting, but I, but it, I went through that book so well that I, I found myself to be moderately conversational to a French visitor, which I just didn't know. Like I, I could speak French. I just didn't know it. And I used that, I used that, um, when, when I was in Delta quite a bit because I was, uh, assigned as the advance operator, you know, the man that goes first right. to all the different locations, safe sit, you know, prepares it for the general of, of the country. It's arrival. And, uh, I had to, you know, speak to the French officers of the camp and, uh, I picked it. I got to be more fluent with that, and of course, being in Bosnia, where this is where it was, it was in Bosnia, and, and it was a UN situation. So we had every country in the UN had their presence there, and our general was interested in, you know, of course, meeting the in-country folks, but he wanted to also meet with all the rest of the UN. So that kept me traveling, and I was learning Serbo-Croatian at the same time. I did a did a primer before I went. I did about a three month workup uh, on that language. You know, every day after work, cassette tapes, writing. You know, sentence after sentence. By the time I got it into the country, I was you know pretty self sufficient, at, at least to the point where I could progress in that language without even needing books anymore. You know, I don't need them now. I just carried around this my black notebook and constantly filling it up with new words, and uh, did a lot of speaking, a lot of negotiations with the locals. So, Serbo Croat that's a very difficult language along the lines of the Asian ones like Chinese, Cantonese, and such. And I, I did eventually, by the way, um, improve my my Mandarin Chinese to the point where I scored well at the. Uh, on the, the, the test. Now I, I tell me if this is true. I heard that you, you scored almost perfect on that test, by the way, but there was this one question that said yeah. like, see high or see the future. And there was like three choices yeah, and you asked yeah. people that spoke the language and you got a different answer every single time. They didn't know. It just, it just, it's, it, Perfect. The perfect phrase is lost in translation, right? Right. Because you think about it. So I'm asking them, I'm asking them a question in Chinese, like can't see the, the woods, can't see the woods for the forest was one of them. And I'd ask them that and they're thinking about it and they're not giving me an answer right away because they don't really understand 
can't see the woods for the forest themselves. Like they're not they're the problems. They're not fluent enough in English to, to give me the answer in Chinese. And and it's the other way around as well. I mean, I, I, I took the Spanish test one year. I took it every year, and I, I outscored a, a couple of native speakers from Puerto Rico. You know, and I was wondering how the hell could that be, and then I realized eventually that it's the dialect, that, right? Well, no, it's the it's the they. Uh, I lost how I was going to describe it. They they don't to them that was more a test of English than it was of Spanish. Okay, because you think about it, you've got you got like four Spanish answers, you know, and they they know what all those mean, but in the paragraph. They're not reading that paragraph well enough to figure out which of the Spanish words goes where. That's why. It's because I was better in English than they were in Spanish. Well, it's it's amazing because it, it ended up being a total of seven languages. And then also, do you include uh, Morse code in there too, correct? Because you took that at communication sure. school. So I, I uh, cross-trained from an 18 Bravo. That's weapons. Sergeant 18 Echo communication sergeant, and yeah, the, the SF communication sergeants in that in the day had to learn uh, Morse code. We had to we had to uh, understand 15 groups a minute and copy 13 groups a minute. Wow! And they, they were random groups. They weren't like real words. They were just like five digits. Is one group to you know? Okay. And so I had heard that uh, also you, to practice that when you were in the school, you would read the billboards on the road and do them in Morse code in your head. Yeah, sure. Just drive along and see the billboards and just start tapping them out. You know, da 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 Next one. Yeah, I mean, because you're traveling on the freeway, so you got to be able to do it pretty quick. Yeah, and, and I wasn't the greatest in Morse code, so I that that type of extra practice was, in my mind, it was mandatory. Right, because the, the exam was you know tough. We had well, we had to we had to tap out. Um, we had to tap out like of uh, uh, a thirty group or a forty group message on a cassette recorder. We tapped it out. So, it's all done. Then we had to rewind and we had to copy what we just tapped. And that's pretty cool because it, because if you're, ta if you're tapping code and it's all, it's all crappy, they call it a shit fist. If you're, if you're doing it, if your code's not legible and you can't read it, then you're not passing. Yeah. I guess that would be a good way if you can't even yeah, read your own handwriting. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty smart. If you think you can just blow through these groups Whizz, 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 you know, and there I'm done. I spent them sending. Well, now you got to receive, and now it's got to be your own work you receive. And you're thinking, Oh, I wish I'd slowed down. <laughs> <laughs> so, in all the things that you did in the military, uh, did you ever use Morse code? No, not officially. I left myself some notes occasionally in Morse code, just they're very short. I left some notes, and there's uh, you know, Delta's like 50-50 Rangers and SF. So there's other 18 Echoes um, that, that know the code as well. Okay, yeah. So, but, but you never had to use it in an official capacity. 
No, not the eunuch. Are you? Is that is that something that you're glad about? <laughs> I didn't mind. I mean, if it, if it called for it, I'd say, I, "Here I am." Right, right. I, I'll, I'll send the I'll send the code. Uh, I still remember the code, just you know, not in any specific speed. You know, it's right. Just, I just remember. Of the course. Digits. Yeah, of course. Let's go back to your first in the army. Uh, I thought it was interesting um, when you talk about being in the army and you go infantry and you, you really haven't chosen special forces or that route yet. Just the infantry carrying a rifle, doing what you said, digging a hole, sleeping in it. And then you get around these other guys and it's, I think it's the way I read it was a culture shock to you. Like you thought it's not really what you expected. So, Yeah. yeah. Can we talk a little bit about that? Well, it was, it was, the, it was, it was a peacetime army then, you know, uh, 1980s to the 90s. It was a peacetime army. So the army really didn't have a budget to go send guys out training. Uh, we did a little bit, very little training there at, at the base I was, or the post I was stationed at. Almost no live fire. Uh, it was just busy work. Mostly we spent down at the motor pool, motor pool sweeping up you know oil stains that are m113 armored personnel personnel carrier tracks left and we go over the maintenance schedule there was nothing we weren't producing anything and i came to learn that in my company alone there was only one other guy that was there by volunteer and that everybody else was there trying to get away from hiding from something uh sentenced to that by court judge you know says either this either jail or the army and so they decide they'll go to the army and complain and make everybody else miserable and it was bad like that nobody was interested in education you know i took some college courses at night after work you know i ran down the parade field and uh went to the classroom took some some stuff there and nobody was interested in education they were they were interested in their their car and their barracks room, you know. They just wanted wanted enough to keep payments on their car so they could go out clubbing at night and then have a place to come back to the, the barracks. And I couldn't stand that. I I, I realized I got to get out of here. And and and, I, and after two years, you know, that, that was my reenlistment came up, and it was just two years, and I reenlisted for jump school, airborne school and sf after that because i'm I'm clinically fear fear heights i just have that as i have that horrible fear of heights and that's what kept me from going to jump school and i knew it but then after two years of living with that if with that culture i was ready to jump with or without a parachute (laughs) I just had to get out of there. (laughs) It's funny that you said that because that's exactly what I had up next to talk to you about. Now, your fear of heights, and that's what kept you out of the airborne. That's what kept you just uh, as a basic infantryman. Then you found out, and I love that in the book when you said, at the end of that time, I was ready to jump out of a plane with or without a parachute just to get away from these guys. So you go, you overlook this fear. But I think that your fear was maybe a self-fulfilling prophecy because you had a couple of mishaps on jumps. Now, I want to talk about the mishaps first. And then after that, I want to ask you about what that did for that fear, what that did for the 
what you already thought about jumping out of a perfectly good airplane. So the first one that we should talk about is at 17,000 feet on a halo jump. Yeah, yeah, that was that was actually a hey-ho jump. Oh, okay, right? okay. Um, <clears throat> so it's high altitude and high opening. The ob object is just to get out of the aircraft, basically count to five and open your parachute and be at 17,000 some feet. Um, and I, we, we only had one of those in, in the course, the accelerated course that I went to. Yeah, I got out and uh, did my five count, pulled my ripcord, and my, something was up with my parachute. It was, it was spinning one direction, uh, and it, it, was, it was starting to spin faster and faster. And I was like, what, what's going on? You know, what, 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 do I, what can I do? do I, am I going to cut away my parachute? I don't want to cut my chute away spinning like this. It's going to tangle me up in my reserve. So I just, I countered, I tried to counter the turn with the other brake. And I pulled it down to my knee. Then I reached up and I wrapped more and more of this brake line in my hand. And I pulled it down even further and, it, and the, the parachute stopped spinning. And I had a straight, a good canopy and it was flying straight. It's just the turning was backwards. You know, if, if I wanted to turn one way, well, I, I just let some, a couple of loops out of this stuff that I had wrapped around my hand, you know, it caused the parachute to turn it. Then I break, wrapped it around my hand to stop the spin again. And I didn't really know where I was at. I couldn't see the school, but it was, I was just kind of parallel on the freeway. And uh, I knew the winds were high up where I was at. I couldn't feel it, you know, but. But the cars, we were, I was overtaking cars down thousands of feet below. Wow, the wind's really got a good tailwind here pushing me the right way. It's pushing me toward the school. And um, <clears throat> I just kept a straight line as I could. And I was sinking at the same time. And uh, there, I came, it came to a point where I finally recognized a compound that I might land in. I might land in this compound. And it's, it's a helicopter. It's an army airfield. <laughs> and a couple of those birds down there had their rotors wailing. And I was like doing all these calculations. And I was like, what, what do I do? What, I can't miss it. I have to miss it. You know, I don't want to land on a human blender. So I just kept, I kept uh, what I had and it flew over the, the Blackhawks cleared the fence, the barbed wire fence, with my feet picked up a little bit, and I landed in a dry, or dry riverbed. And I couldn't see any school anywhere. So I just packed my chute up, and one of our vehicles came racing up, and a rigger jumped out and asked me what happened. And I, was, I explained it. He said, next time you pack, you get to that step where you're stowing your, your suspension lines, Give me a shout and I'll come over and watch you how you do it. And he did. Next time I packed, he came over, he made a correction. So I started doing it like he did it and uh, never had another another problem ever. Now, when whenever he talked to you and said to call you over, on the next jump that you did, you didn't even have to call him. Like he he was on top of you when you got to that step without you even calling him, watching. That's right. Yeah, that's right. He was already he was already waiting for me to get to that step where you stow the suspension lines. 
And so you, you yeah. told him like, you're great because of him. Yeah. You know, yeah. I never had another problem of that magnitude. Thanks to him. Um, yeah. What had happened is those suspension lines had, had, had opened up and they'd got it mixed up in, with each other and they got knots. So there were knots in there and that was causing it to retard the shape of the canopy. It, it was putting it in like a, a permanent right hand turn, a real hard one. So, um, oh, and um, as I cleared the fence in the barbed wire, I was low enough that the, the ground heat was, was, was coming up and it was making my chute bounce as, as it usually does down low. My chute started bouncing and it undid, undid those knots. It just took the pressure off the knots. They just fell right out. And so I started spinning the other way this time. <laughs> and it was easy fix. I just let go of all that crap I was holding. And uh, I, yeah, I landed, did a good landing and some sand. So I got to ask you, going through your mind, you already hate heights. You already hate jumping out of airplanes. When yeah. this happens, are... Was there ever a point as you're coming down that you go, I knew I hated this for a fucking reason. Yeah. I, I, I mean, static line, we did our jumps at uh, 1200 feet. Halos, administrative halos, we did it at 12,500 feet. And, um, I, I thought, well, this, this halo is going to get me over static line fear. And it didn't. <laughs> So one was just as bad as the other. But in Delta, all we did was halo jumps. That's all we did. We didn't do any static lines. But yeah, every every jump was the same problem. You know, fear of heights. Right. And and, and it just, never. I had to do. I just, you know, we're jumping today. I I had to do it because that's what I had to do. Well, I I saw an article uh, probably about a month ago that there is a group of guys in special forces that all hate to jump, but they, a lot of them keep it to themselves that they hate to jump or that they have the fear of heights. Did you know anyone else that had the fear that you had? Uh, of course you always went out and did what you were supposed to, but was there anyone else that just did not like heights, did not like jumping that you worked with? Yeah. Well, the yeah, Delta, there was two other guys, three guys in particular, <clears throat> um, that they were, they were in the jump haters club, as I called it. And, uh, yeah, they, they hated it, but they did it anyway. Um, they, I never missed a jump. Um, I did them all, but one of the guys, he, he didn't actually need to jump just for pay purpose. And we were in Poland, right? So he's already caught up with his payment and he didn't have to jump that month. And so we were jumping with the, the, the Grom, Polish Grom because we were after their wings. You know, we want some Polish Grom wings, foreign wings. You know the deal, man. Right. And uh, he, someone's parachute had a problem with it. It was unjumpable. And this guy, Greg, he drug his parachute, threw it down at his feet. He goes, here, take mine. <laughs> and I said, Greg, you're not going to get the Polish Grom wings. He goes, are you kidding? <laughs> he didn't care about wings, you know. 
It doesn't sound like it. He sounds like a selfless person. He he gave away that parachute. Uh, yeah, to someone that really wanted those wings. Right. So here's another one that we have. So you have a collision at 24,000 feet. Not only yeah. do you have a collision at 24,000 feet, but you lose oxygen and pass out at 24,000 feet. Yep. That's what happened. All That's what happened. Um, we got up at 24,000 feet. Well, on the way up, you know, we fly around for half an hour and breathe oxygen. You know, we're getting uh, nitrogen out of our systems. We're breathing pure oxygen on a console because we we're not carrying that much in our bottle on our hip. So we, after 30 minutes on the console, then riggers, riggers come by and they do this for you is they plug your hose into your oxygen bottle and turn it on. You don't get to see that. You don't get to touch it or anything. And we, we got on the ramp and it was on the ramp that we were just going to, the plan was just going to jump out, you know, side by side to each, this guy on the ramp decided he wanted to put together a, a piece, they call it, and everybody had hold hands in a damn circle in the shape of a star. And I was, protest, I was protesting hard. I was like, we didn't plan on this. This isn't the plan. <laughs> and they did it anyway. They just, I said, I just know, I just know this is going to screw up. And, you know, we jumped out, jumped off the ramp in our star, and our star folded like this. And so this half of the star slammed into this half of the star. And I remember the guy that I impacted with, he remembers me. Um, but when I did, when my oxygen got, the, the valve got flipped off. It's just flip on, flip off. It's one of those. It's not a, Sounds safe. Not a, yeah, I, I, mean, I didn't even know what it felt like because they didn't let us touch that stuff. Right. So I was reaching back here, you know, sucking in real thin air through through the seal in my mask and my face you know it's just like i was getting just that little bit there wasn't enough o2 in there and there wasn't enough air period coming in my mask and i was feeling around desperately trying to figure out how, how does it work what does it feel like and then everything started looking kind of cartoonish it was it was sunrise by this time and I could see people around me that they all looked like cartoons. <laughs> and I kind of got my head together. And um, the jump master came flying up to me, like almost touched his nose to mine. He looked at me and he, with this, you know, severe look on his face and held up his thumb. You know, okay, okay. And I'm like, yeah, okay. He's, he's, he, he said he watched me fall and he thought I was unconscious. So he flew up to me. And watch me fall until, until it was time to figure out one way or the other if I was conscious or not. You know, so he shook me and put his head up there. And, uh, yeah, it was time to pull. It was exactly time to pull. So I just said, oh, I hate jumping. <laughs> <laughs> and so how long do you think you were out? Seconds. Maybe 10 or 15 seconds. Oof. Because when I, when I got to better to a better oxygen content in the atmosphere, the stuff that I was sucking in between my mask and face was starting to have more and more oxygen in it, and that was that was picking me up, you know, get, getting me out of that out of that stupor, and uh, 
Yeah, and and then low enough still, and I never I never had my mask on at I mean the the O2 on since we collided. So I fell all the way down to good oxygen. And my worry now is I just want this this damn mask off, and I know how to do that. And I I unhooked it, let it swing free, and I was ah air. And so, did they ever change that about the riggers doing the oxygen? You're right on on the money because that was my that was my feedback that day, and I wondered to this day what are the guys doing because that's just not cool. It's putting something on you that you're not familiar with. Yeah, especially if you don't know what it feels like to be on or off. Yeah, I I didn't know. Of course, on the ground, and I was looking at it going, oh, and flipping that brass lever, because it would be brass because that's high-pressure oxygen. Right. And I looked to where I was reaching, and I looked to where it actually was, and I said, oh, damn, I missed it. We know you don't like to jump, but I know you like to dive. Uh, you went to dive school, and and later on, you became an instructor at the dive school. Yes. Um, what was it about diving? Because I know when I was in the military, when I went to dive school, I loved it. It was the best course I ever went to. I did it, you know, in civilian life. I did it in my law enforcement life as a diver. Uh, I just loved being working underwater. There were times where you get nervous and stuff like that, but oh yeah, you know, because there's some stuff that <laughs> yeah. goes foul on you. But what was it about diving that that you liked so much that you chose that to be your? Because to move up the ranks, you you talk about it in the book that you had to take an instructor position at, at, at some kind of school, and that was the one you chose. So what was it about diving that that made you choose that? I'll tell you the truth, I don't particularly like diving. Never did. Really? Yeah, and I took like a T, a, a paddy diving uh, course when I was in high school, you know, because it was something to do. And we went to Mexico and we dove in some really nice water, and it was pretty cool. But in the army, you know, the, the diving's no fun. <laughs> right. I, I dove a couple of times just to be a, a buddy to some guy that wanted to get out and do some lobster hunting. So you know, I. I um, and I got my lobster hunting license, to be honest. And my wife at the time, she liked lobster. I didn't care for it. It's just another fish. But I, with his license, I can get her 12 lobsters. Well, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, so I dove him with him. Uh, and th- that's like the only uh, recreational dive I did there. All the rest of them were the usual, you know, tactical dives. Underwater 3,000 meter swim, underwater um, rebreather, pure oxygen rebreathers. You can stay underwater for four hours on those things. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, using the Draegers with no bubbles, right? Yeah, but, but, but the, the sea life treated you different when you weren't spitting bubbles out. I would think so, yeah. Yeah, dolphins. Dolphin came in rested his nose, its its rostrum, rested it right on my shoulder. Because I was looking in my bag trying to count my lobsters, so I didn't go accidentally go over. Because the, game, the wardens are known, game wardens are known to be standing right up outside the dive dive waters on the shore, watching your buoy, getting ready for you to come out of the water. All right, let's see what you got here and count them. Yeah, yeah I just laid his nose right over and looked at my lobsters with me. 
and yeah, stuff things will come up to you that don't usually come up to you if you're not spitting out bubbles. There's nothing else under the sea ex ex uh, you know blows out bubbles. They don't expire bubbles in the water. Nothing does. Right. Except some foreign guy. So then, what was it about dive school that made you choose it? Oh, that that's easy. That was the that was the most professionally run uh, and the, the physically toughest school I'd ever been to in the army, hands down. And I just wanted to be a member of that elite cadre. They were they were amazing guys, and I wanted to be one of them. So I fought hard and got got to go to the dive supervisor school and become an instructor. Now those guys were great, except for I think one person at that school. You weren't you weren't big on the old man. Yeah, he was. I don't know what what happened with that guy. He just uh, well, he's he's from the unit. There was a there was a uh, a bachelor party. We, we threw a bachelor party for one of the guys getting married, and um, you know I just basically was there to toast him. You know, said congratulations. And then I left. After I left, then it got out of hand, and it, a, a guy pulled a knife on another guy, and that that they immediately f- uh, fired the the old man and the first sergeant. They got rid of them and brought in two guys, t- two fresh uh, headshed fellows. Both of them were from Delta, um, and I think they were both asked to leave. I know the officer was he he was fired. And um, the NCO didn't have any very good stories lighting up his uh, reputation, you know. And, yeah, me and the boss were, were button heads. All the guys were unhappy with him. And, and, my, and I was of the mind, let's, let's go in and tell him. You know, let's come on, let's, let's go tell him. Let's... And at the end of the day, I, I'd be standing out the door, the old man's door. He's looking at me through the glass, and I'm looking at him. And there's no one else there. So he'd come over the door. Did you have something you wanted to say? He's starting to hand. Yeah, we're tired of this bullshit. But we had a couple, a few of those sessions. And uh, we had a final one we had was over the, the conduct of a dive that I was in charge of. You know, he found he found a, an error, you know, and he was right. But he started talking about this, this kind of thing. Sardan could get you thrown into jail. And if I had my way, like once he said jail, then I started looking at how how am I going to get out of here, like immediately. And Delta was the only way, the only way I could cut short that uh, tour of duty was to go to Delta. Delta took priority; could get anybody out of anywhere to come try out for selection. And typically, um, in uh, Officers recognize it about their men. You know, they hate Delta because Delta's taken all their best guys. But they forwarded the, the men time off daily to work out, to do some extra PT. You know, with ruck marching and running and all that sort of thing. And, and my CEO didn't give me a minute. He says, no, you're, you'll be at your duty time and place for a full duty day. I thought, yeah, that's... He doesn't, he doesn't want me to make it. So I just worked out on my own after hours and uh, made it first time through. Any idea? I mean, did you, 
I'm sure you never talked to him about it, but any idea why he was like that about even training up? I mean, maybe you two didn't like each other, but I mean, it seems like, like you said, that would take the priority. Did you ever come to a conclusion like why this guy was had it in so much for you? No, and I, well, I knew why he focused on me because I was in his office arguing with him, and uh, I actually called him a dick one day. So, sir, you know, you're a dick, and he goes, "Well, you know, Sardinan, you're a dick too." I thought, fair enough, you know. Shook hands. We always shook hands after those those arguments, but nothing ever changed, you know. And um, the guys that could were going off to Delta and trying out for Delta. They all made it, especially coming from Key West, that cadre with their physical training. Yeah, they all the guys made it. So we're going to get into your uh training into the special missions unit and things like that. But I thought first I want to talk about a couple of the stories from your time in Delta and some of the guys that you so much uh, respected in this book with their stories. Uh, My favorite story out of the book was uh, the Serbian swim mission. And uh, you're, you do this not once, but twice, once on your own, once with Robert Hornady. Uh, now, I want you to set it up because when, when you hear it, you think that this story is going to go a completely different direction. Uh, I thought it was going to be about communication and meeting with the people and becoming part of the culture. And then it just takes a complete left turn. Um, so can you set this up? And, and I, I don't want you to leave out about the tensions that were going on there and different things that were happening while you were there. The, 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 above the baseline of it is, um, we were there in country working with the agency as well, working in tandem with them. And, uh, and I'd worked with the agency before as a green beret. And, and just no, nobody can work with the agency because you, nobody can match their money. Like, you know, everyone's got the secret weapon. There's his money. Nobody can top that, that damn money. Like they were getting information in Colombia on the drug cartel that I couldn't get cause I could, couldn't buy it. But they just were slinging just all kinds of money. So one of the things they did, they put up, the, the, the river separating um, the Republic of Srpska from Serbia proper it was that river there. And there was a bridge that linked the two. And I got wind that, this, that the agency had set up a ca- set up a camera on the far side and um, just, you know, co- covered it up, disguised it. But it was it was a, it was a it was a well-known area that um, I've seen drawings, maps, photos of just right at, right at the other end of that bridge. And it was looking at license plates. So every car that took that bridge, all the license plates leaving uh, Serbia were on record. Then of course, everyone coming into Serbia are getting recorded as well. And they had set up this camera, it's expensive camera. It was, it was nice. And they abandoned it. They just decided they didn't need it after all, and they abandoned it. That's, that's how they work. You know, this why risk 
going over there to get that camera if we don't even care what, what it contains anymore. And I decided, I, I want that. Because I get that, it'll be mine. It'll be personally mine. It's not belong to the Army. It's, it's going to be my camera. And I tried the first time and damn near drown. I could <laughs> washing down the river going, holy Christ, until I hit some real shallows. And I was just rolling across these shallows of river rock. And uh, that's why I call it river Operation Rolling Rock, because I rolled through the rocks. And this, there's that beer as well, the name of the beer. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, I was, I was done with that idea. But then it came back to me as I, I damn, I want that camera. Um, what what was it about that camera that you wanted so bad? That I think that's I, I what fascinated me about the story. Well, it was, it was a digital movie camera. Okay. It was sophisticated for its day, and it's a thing that I could not afford ordinarily. And it was abandoned. So it was like, there it was, didn't cost anything, just go get it. Okay. So, yeah, I got, I got Bob to come help me. And he, he, he was going to stay on the near side, and I would be tethered off this time and get across that river, you know, with Bob as my security. You know, if I lost control, started to float, he could just pull me in, you know. And I didn't, I didn't plan on uh, floating this time. So I got there, and I, the, and I took my tether, took it off my waist, and I, I piled some river rock on top of it, of the tether. And then I cl climbed up this slope basically still under the bridge all the way until it got to the top of where the, bri the bridge met the road and started scouring around the, the area as it was, was described in the uh, drop-off report. And it, there it was. There it was. And I had it. I was jacked. It was like, yeah. So, so I, um, I had a, a waterproof bag, pl plastic waterproof bag, but sealed that up and just put it down in my vest. And um, when I got to the bottom, and I just slid on my butt to the bottom to where the rope was and the tether was gone, right? And I go, what happened? And I've come to find out is the, the, the current, the tether couldn't take the, the strain of the current, which was beating it the whole time. So it was starting to inch it out from underneath those rocks. And then it, got it and you know started floating down the river and, and Bob could tell that there was no tension on the other end you know he he could tell something had went sour and uh, I no longer had a tether whether I'd fallen off it and was floating away or whether I never got to it it was stuck up on the bridge he didn't know so he had to know so he tied off a tether for himself on the near side of the bridge anchored really well and he swam that river all the way across with the tether, you know, in his mouth. And he was, he was crouched down at the, the pile of river rock where the, where the tether should have been. He was crouched there and I was, I was, I was sliding down. I was shocked to, to death because there's some, there's a person down there, right. you know, and he's was hoping that was me sliding down to him. And I said, you know, Bob, what happened? What are you doing here? And he said, I, I thought you'd fallen off your tether. We didn't want to sort it out there. We just wanted to get back. 
and uh, so Bob, that guy's tough as nails, he gave me his tether, then he went hand over hand back to the near side, and then I started across, you know, with the camera, and it, I was so cold way before that, but by this time I was really cold and started to go hyperthermic, and Bob made both of those swims. He didn't, he didn't get, he's just a tough man. The guy's heart is huge. And it got to a point where I was starting to see things like rabbits hopping, hopping through the water, different colored rabbits hopping. And then I just had this un, uncontrollable urge to sleep. And, and I fell asleep. I you know, went and got conscious again, and Bob knew, so he just, or he didn't know, but he thought he knew, he just started pulling as hard as he could. And he said he could feel me bumping off, <laughs> he said he could feel me bumping off a riffraff underwater, off rocks and junk, dirt. So he knew I was on the bottom, and he pulled, pulled me out, and uh, uh, I felt through the camera, it was still there. And uh, he, he, he helped me out. We got ourselves out of there. Yeah, he, uh, what was interesting to me was he had some, you, you had already stocked away in the vehicle some blankets, some of the, the gear for the mission. He yeah, took so one he blanket, would, gave you two, uh, and then drove you guys back. Now, you did save the day by having the hot coffee already stashed in the vehicle for the ride back. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know. I knew him pretty well, but a lot of personal things I didn't know. You know, I didn't have to know, and I wasn't sure if he was, would drink coffee or not. You know, there's some people, there's not coffee drinkers. Right. So I had it in a thermos under under my seat. Um, and if he didn't want it, then that's fine, but I was going to go ahead and drink that coffee, and I needed it too. By, so now I had two blankets on me, and I was sipping hot hot coffee shaking like crazy but in, in all it was a successful mission you know i had what i set out to get and uh i had a, the best guy pulling six o'clock for me and uh we made just a gentleman's pact that we wouldn't mention that at all to our people that were there um and the folks there would have behaved one way you know Oh, you knuckleheads! But back at back home, they would have sheared my head off. Well, and hit me with all kinds of poor judgment, you know, paperwork and who knows what. So I was just really, really scared of that happening. So I said, if I can stop that, the word right here, and this is Bob, right at Bob, then I should be okay. And as it as it turns out, Bob, one of the best people one of the kindest people in the unit was not a blabbermouth either of all the bad things. He wasn't, he wasn't a blabbermouth. So <clears throat> then he passed away in uh, Iraq. He was, he was hit with AK 47, him and the guy that he was training one final mission. They both got killed and he was an excellent uh, Messerschmitt as well. I mean, he, made superior knives and i bought one from him based off some polaroids that he showed me in bosnia i, I make knives you make knives bob 
got any pictures of your work? Yeah, and he pulled out a handful. I, I bought it, you know, said, how much? I paid him right there. He said, when we get back from Bosnia, he's going to make me a knife. So, you know, with that guy, you, you, you could have picked a lot of people. You had talked to some other people. They had all pretty much said no. They didn't want any part of it. But it seems like once again, and, and this is the thing that I kept going back to in your book, it all seemed to work out. It went to the right guy for you. Um, you know, it could have went to someone else that was a blabbermouth. It could have went to someone else that wouldn't have paid attention when the line wasn't taught anymore. I mean, there was a ton of things that seemed like it, it was in your favor, like something was shining on you. And, and you know, he was, he was, I picked him, but I would have picked him if I had thought of him first, but I picked him because he was the only one there at our safe house. It used to be a motel. And it's got a compound around it and it locks up. That's why we have it. Cause, cause it was like a Friday or Saturday night or something. And he was the only one besides me that didn't go out. You know, the rest of the guys were headed to right. Camp Eagle to the NCO club, you know, tie on a couple of beers. And, you know, Bob just, he hang back, read books, wrote to his family. You know, he's an exceptional person. Well, he, he sounded amazing and, and how you described him at the end that, that he was literally on his last mission. Uh, he had just stayed to make sure the new guy was ready to go and what he needed to do. And yeah. the way you described him is, is amazing. You give so much reverence to him. And like I said, that was my favorite story out of the entire book. And there's, there's a lot of stories, a lot of people, but that was my favorite. Thank you, DJ. Another one that was interesting to me, and I want to talk about him, not so much about the story, but I want to talk about the person because you had a lot to say about him in the book. And that's Samuel Booth Foster. This guy is a puzzle wrapped in an enigma wrapped in like the stuff, how you described him and the things that he did <laughs> made absolutely no sense to me. That this complex, and, and when I say a complex person, I mean a complex person. He had yeah. so many different traits that seemed exact opposites of each other. Like his whole being was just a walking dichotomy of itself. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree. He's, I've, and I've said before, I, I mean, he's so damn smart that he, um, that he bored very easily he got bored with things because he could, could figure them all out you know okay i'm done well, now what's what's next what's next and um the only thing i i faulted him with is that he was a selfish man he was selfish <laughs> you know he, he i think he well he was definitely um uh, i forget the order psycho not psycho but sociopath sociopath he was definitely a, that without a doubt because he could do anything and have no remorse never seen him cry never, never saw him get mad and this is a lot of years never saw him get mad or i i did and didn't notice right it might have been so subtle you know well you you describe him in the book i found sam to be utterly selfish but it's it was it was strange to me how you wrote it in the book because you mentioned that line a lot of times that you find him utterly selfish or so as you thought him to be. 
but you showed these little things about him that made him kind of stand out that a lot of people didn't overlook that selfish, but, but sometimes you just couldn't. One of the times that I want to talk about that really kind of struck me was when you went to Auschwitz and, and the brick, like I, I, yeah, the one the the motivation behind it in in my mind and, and i want you to tell this story and i want you to talk about the brick and i want everyone to understand this is just the storyteller this is not the guy that did it he's yeah. just the one telling the story so if you could and then i want to talk about kind of the motivation behind that guy because when i heard that it it's hard to like someone when you hear stuff like that yeah it is um, and I hesitated writing. <clears throat> I know there's a, there's at least one or two things that I didn't didn't put in there about him just just because just because there's no way. But yeah, we were in Poland and had a day off, and uh, I heard that there was a couple of cars going to Auschwitz, and uh, me and Sam jumped aboard. You know, we favored instead of the bar, we favored the you know the history, and. Uh, and we went through Auschwitz one, and um, it was pretty pretty somber, you know. Everybody was somber. I was somber, and Sam was just like, "Oh wow!" And you know, making remarks. At, at least he's whispering, you know. He's making some remarks, <laughs> right. some jokes. And he he saw a chart that had uh, statistics, numbers of of um, uh, German Jews, number of, of Italian Jews, number of, of uh, Russian Jews that were exterminated at this camp. And at the bottom, there was number of French Jews and they, they, they had the lowest number of all the rest of the casualties there. And Sam looked at that and he said, George, look where the French are. They executed this plan completely backwards. I said, well, I, yeah, I, yeah, I know you don't like the French, man, but whoa, you know, that's the way it was. And those, those candles in those half, they look, look like half of a soda can. They're spread out through the rocks. Those are candles, you know, and the folks put them there and they say prayers to the candles. And Sam just got to look at those and goes, well, I think it's really inconsiderate of these people to leave their beer cans strung all about, don't you, George? <laughs> I said, it just doesn't stop, you know, said, where can we go that will, you know, finally make him go, oh, my Lord, you know, it's so the crematorium, so it's number, number five is the, is the one it was. And, uh, he, he <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I caught him rooting through the, the, the five had been di dynamited by the Nazis before they pulled out. They, they're trying to blow up all this evidence, you know. They didn't, they didn't get them all. But five is a bunch of rubble. And Sam's picking through these, this rubble. And I said, Sam, I'm pretty sure they don't want nothing disturbed here. They don't want this piece of rubble moved over here. And that piece of rubble moved over there. They want it right where it's at. And he just didn't, didn't give me any mind at all. He just kept looking. He goes, finally, I found it. I found the perfect brick. I go, what are you going to do with the with a with a brick with this brick what are you gonna do with this brick he said he's good when he gets home he's gonna build a barbecue and that was that brick was gonna be the cornerstone and 
hey man it's it's karma in in the end you know we cleaned out his garage for him when he died and i found that break what what do you think because you were around all different kinds of people you were around all different kinds of personalities what do you think it was about this guy's past or what it was that made him because you would think in the job that he was in there would be at least a little reverence for certain things or um i guess uh i don't know some kind of pomp and circumstance for certain situations do you have any idea why it didn't rub off at all i, I don't that's just i guess that such as a sociopath uh you know if you can't have reverence for Auschwitz, what's left? Yeah. Didn't bother him. Combat didn't bother him. You know, you wouldn't catch him cowering, hiding, you know, curled up in a ball. I've never seen him afraid of anything. He's fearless. He was nothing, nothing fazed him. So all those things, you know, it's really smart, selfish, not afraid of anything. Uh, doesn't like anyone that's not American, you know. But you could, have, and and he he liked me because he said I was the only one he could talk to. <laughs> he couldn't carry on a conversation very long with with anybody else, especially the Rangers, because he thinks they're all knuckleheads, you know. Well, and, and with you, even some of the conversations you had with him, you know, he was like, I don't understand why guys act like this around me. And you're like, bro, it's because of how you act. You have to change their thought process because they're going to think the way they think about you because of the way you act. And, and it seems what stood out to me in his story was that he did like you. He did say he could talk to you, but when he did talk to you, of course you, you got along with him and everything, but you were always telling him like, Hey, this is what you're doing wrong. And it seems to me like a guy like that would have a problem with that of someone telling him, Hey, you're wrong the way you're acting. Yeah, because he knew in his, he knew in his heart that he wasn't wrong. Uh, you know, it's, you know, it's stupid people don't know they're stupid. You know, and, and, <laughs> and if you tell them, you tell them they are, they'll disagree with you. Right. Because they don't know what they don't know. Yeah, and I, I don't know how, how Sam, but it was another thing. Sam could not, he couldn't talk to a woman. He couldn't. He, he, he couldn't, and in all, all the, the years we were living there at Fort Bragg, he, he, he could not uh, find a girlfriend. He couldn't talk to him, didn't know how. He finally had to send back to his hometown and have a wife imported. <laughs> You know, the only woman that he ever somehow got along with. And right. He ended up marrying her. And that's where he got his two two children from. But but that's one of those things about his personality. And I and I heard him talk, trying to talk to a, a lady one night. And I was like, that's the worst. That's horrible, man. It's, it's horrible. Where did you, where'd you hear those lines? Don't deliver lines. Don't ever deliver a line. Right. You know, especially if you can't deliver lines, boy, but so, that was another, go ahead. Well, what I wanted to say was uh, the reason I bring up those two so different from each other 
They were both how you talk about them in the book, both amazing warriors, both willing to give their life to this country. But there was such a difference in personality. It stuck out to me about those guys that they were, they had the same end game. They had the same focus, but completely different people showing that how this unit was made up of these men of so many different personalities. Because a lot of people, I think, they think everything is just one way. The they're robots, or they they do this, or they do that, or they're this way, or they're that way, and and that's not true about the SMU. Right. I think more than anywhere, when you're in special forces, when you're in the military, I think more than anywhere, you have thinking men and men that have other goals in life and things like that. I mean, look at you, how long you spend in there. You've written books. You're a master woodworker. There's so many different things that you do. And that that's not just you. That's a lot of guys that are there. Yeah, we had a lot of woodworkers at the unit. It was something we we uh, found easy to share. And, and if we took a van load of guys to a wood, wood show, just guys from the unit. We all went to this wood show and walked around. Ooh, ah, you know, look at all the stuff we couldn't have. But um, yeah, there was a guys had some amazing hobbies. I'd noticed Sam had a bunch of them, and just all, all the guys had their had their hobbies. They weren't they weren't just couch potatoes. They were off doing something when they were on, on duty. Uh, I was always amazed at the the different the, just the different personalities and got different backgrounds, especially you know either whether in the army or before the army with some interesting backgrounds, you know, private detective, school teacher. Um, that, that one always tricked me out. Um, uh, a DJ, had a guy that, yeah, he's, he talked on a radio show. He had his own program and now they end up in the unit. And, but, but that the physical, that physical aspect of making it through that month long selection course, you just can't, can't deny it. You know, it doesn't matter if, if, if the, if the chaplain's orderly makes it through, then he's, he's on our team. You know, the flute player in the band makes it, well, we got a flute player now on the team. Um, if you make it through West Virginia then, and the, and the board, the commander's board as well, then, then you make it. And the, all the psych analysis, um, they, they have their own psychiatrist there. And um, we just everyone goes through the same the same beating in that first one, that first month. And uh, oddly, I mean, oddly enough, uh, a couple of guys lost about a couple of months after getting on a team. We lost them for you know violating something. And in this one guy's case, the guys didn't like him. He has a shitty personality. <laughs> No was that the Tenth Mountain guy? He, he he didn't make it through the commander's board. Okay. Yeah, he had a shitty personality, and he was uh, better than everyone else. Uh, you know, and he wouldn't talk to us because he didn't know where we were from, and he didn't want to know. He's Tenth Mountain, yeah, but he had that particular. He had a, a unique uh, soul print on his boot that no one else had. You know, because he had special this, special that, all his Tenth Mountain group kit he had with him. 
but those boot prints, like on the last day when we walked for about eight and a half hours nonstop for me, I, I, I was at a point where I was hesitant, which of, of direction, kind of like a fork, you know, it was more than a fork. It was had some more tines there, but I saw that guy's boot print. I said, he's the fastest one in class. He's, he's been the fastest one. And he's always made his points. He can navigate. You can't take that away from him. So I followed those, those tracks. And they were right. Those tracks were right. And I followed them until they ran out. And uh, only, only needed them one time. That one time that I was lost, suddenly, ping, here's these tracks. Interesting. Yeah. Talking so about you saying things are all laid out for you. Things happen. For I reason. noticed that over and over in the book. It just seemed like the, the right things popped up at the right time. There's two more guys in your life that I want to talk about, and, and I don't have any set stories about them. I just want to hear your thoughts on them. Uh, I've had a conversation um, with Greg Gravy Coker about his book that you wrote with him, Death Waits in the yeah. Dark. I've met yeah. him in real life. He's a great guy. And the second guy is Pat McNamara. Hell, that's been my best friend for like 35 years now. Yeah. And so I, I just want to hear what you think about these guys because, you know, with with Greg and and everything that he's done and talked about and and the the difference that his life took, you brought his story to life, though. So I think yeah. probably better than anyone in the service, you probably know him better. Perhaps. Yeah. And so can you talk about these two guys and just like your thoughts on them and, and what makes you guys' relationship work so well? Well, Greg, Greg is a real happening guy. He really is. He's got a lot going on. Uh, he, whenever, the, whenever there's a disaster, he plugs into some lines and he works an incident command. Um, he, uh, he just picked up a message meeting. That his latest thing is he's starting to bake knives right. and, a, and a hatchet. And he's learning how to forge, you know, to just all of a sudden. And now he's fielding these really great looking pieces of cutlery. Um, yeah, I, and I got to know him. I mean, I, I didn't know him. We didn't know each other from squat. And I, he was just, he's just a member of the community. And he, he found out that I was in uh, New Mexico. Where, where I am now and he heard I was a community guy that was in trouble, you know, having a hard time. And he said, he organized a, a, a road trip with some people. They were going to drive out to Albuquerque from Texas where he's at and, you know, see what they could do to help me out. And I, I managed to just stand him down, but that's, that's the kind of guy he is, you know, sight unseen. He's, he's, he's there to help. He'll, he'll do it too. And, and I, and one of his, he went to a school out here years ago. He stopped by, you know, just to, to meet me finally. And he told the story of how he got shot down over, over Iraq. Right. You know, and I said, uh, when it was over, I said, hey, Greg, I'd like to, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to write that story and, and post that software where I have readers. And he goes, uh, he said he wasn't sure about that but he let me know and a, a year went by and i finally got in touch with him i said damn it greg l let me write the story you know i'll write that and i'll write 
everything else, you know, all these other things you did, not just that, that one time. And he, he said that he had prayed, prayed, and God told him it was okay to tell a story. Uh, so he said, well, can you ghost it for me? Uh, but I said, yeah, yeah, without even thinking about it, I said, yeah, just, just get, get the story out. And um, I just wanted to get that story out. And I, I was, I had been dabbling in my book for about a year by then. And I had, you know, some, actually I had about uh, 20 chapters out of uh, predicted, projected 24 chapters done. So I was close, but I just like closed the lid on that and pushed it aside and said, Greg's story has got to get out there fast. You know, mine can wait. And so he was, and he, boy, he was pumping out chat several chapters a day. He pushed two at a time at me. And I, it was, um, it, I was, I was in fear that I was his holdup right now. You know, the holdup is me. So I got to work as hard as he's working, at least. And I got to get these chapters out. And we got them out. It was like 115,000 words. And <clears throat> it was amazing. He made no changes other than some typos that our professional editor missed. Uh, and it, and uh, he, he was good. He had, a, he had a, a producer, publisher, printer. That I finish up my book with those four chapters. I hammered it's the first two and the last, the last two are the ones I hammered out real quick because I'd already been thinking about them long enough. And uh, he was a step ahead of me, so it kind of helped me along the way. You know, he's already been through the hurdle that I'm at right now, and uh, his book published and it sold real quick. It sold so quick he ordered another batch. So I think a thousand and all, and he didn't keep a penny of it. He gave it all to vet, veteran charities. So, and I have a, an idea of how much that is. That's a lot of money. So yeah, we stay in touch. You know, we drop notes every few days. Uh, just, we can tell when each other's having a bad time because it just gets quiet, you know. Um, so that's, that's Greg, you know, larger than life. And um, Pat, I've known Pat since since uh, I my first duty assignment as a Green Beret. We were we were in separate battalions, but everyone knew Mac, you know, because if you didn't like Mac, there was something wrong with you. You know, he was just too easygoing and boisterous and uh, off the hook, and uh, everyone everyone liked him, wanted to be his friend. And he taught, he didn't tolerate a whole lot either. He didn't tolerate any bullshit. He was on top of it immediately. He'd be in someone's face. What do you mean? What do you mean? He's ready to fight if, if he has to. And yeah, so I've known him for like 35 years. Did a podcast with him and um, J, DJ Ortiz. I might be saying that backwards, but I did a podcast with with mac and him they were the hosts uh, and that was the client and um <clears throat> that's the first time i had talked to mac and since we got, both got out of delta he stayed in a couple of years longer than i did um but i got out you know right at 20 because all i had left was bosnia to go to again and i i'd been there twice already and it was 
it's just too sad of a place to go to again. Didn't want to go there. And yeah, so to, to the day, 20 years I put in, he put in a couple extra. Um, and uh, we, yeah, we, we keep, keep touch and follow each other on Facebook and other media. Um, his wife will call me. She was asking me some stuff about human trafficking. But she, they use the same phone, you know, the phone rings and I get a heart attack. I go, that's Max's number. And I say, hello, and it's, it's his wife, you know. We're not, neither one of us are big phone people, me and Mac. Right. We don't like being on the phone. Well, you know, I'm glad that you brought up about getting out because I that's why I want to kind of end our conversation. But there's a okay, couple sure. more things to go through um, that I thought was interesting in the book. And, and I want to talk about, first I want to talk about when you're getting out and you call the chapter Leaving the Brotherhood. Um you, you just talked about that Bosnia, you knew it was time to go when they were going to send you back there. It was too sad of a place and it was time to go. But it was interesting to me how you left the unit. Um, you told everyone that you had a day that you didn't have so that you could leave with no fanfare. Right, right. And, and you say in there that a lot of people say, I don't like parties. I don't like celebrations. You truly don't, though. You truly no. didn't want anyone no, talking not. about you leaving. You just wanted to leave. But what stood out to me was all these guys were your brothers. They're so close. You wrote a book about them later on. I don't understand why you would just walk away with. I, I understand maybe not a retirement party or anything like that, but. I, I, I don't understand how you just walk away and rip that Band-Aid off so fast. Well, um, uh, I knew I was going to do that. And um, that's, just, just, that's just how I wanted it to go down. Right. You know, I'm, um, I've got a lot of humility. I don't like to be, I don't like praise. Uh, you know, or I can read it better than I can hear it, I guess. But I just don't. I just don't, don't like that. It's just part of my part of my self conscious. I don't enjoy it being pumped up. Uh, and um, uh, a lot of guys didn't like that I left the way I did. But yeah, I knew I was going to do it. So, right. And uh, they can even get, just get over it or not. Right. That's the way I see it. And I, I knew I'd catch up with them all later on eventually you know social media has done has helped out a lot with that absolutely yeah guys pop up all over the place but there was one other thing you turned your mirrors in when you were leaving the yeah. compound so that yeah. you wouldn't get any idea of even reminiscing about it it's almost like you got to that point and you knew if there's anything that's going to pull me back, it's going to be right now. Yeah, break the uh, break the tie as quick as possible. And uh, and I turn the mirrors, turn the mirrors askew so I wouldn't be tempted to look at it or look at it by accident. And it, it's just it's it's just too corny, you know. I've I've read that in, in so many books. I go and I and I looked in the rearview mirror and I looked at it for one last time. And then I left. I didn't want to. I don't want that in my chapter. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I got fail safe. These mirrors. I'll 
Can't <laughs> and then you can never write it in your book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember. You know, oh, one last look. And I never went to any of the the yearly socials. Socials. They have them every year right. for everybody. I I don't go to those. Never did. It's, that'd be going back, you know. I'm not. I've decided that the best way to break away is break away. Don't go back. Well, and you were even asked to come back after 9-11, right? And you said no. Yeah. Come back to, yeah, as an operator again. And I said no. The, um, you know, uh, so many of the guys were getting out and becoming contractors and going right back to the same countries they, they left. They're, they're doing the same thing. They're just not doing it in the Army. You know, I'm, what I'm, I'm not sure what the benefit is. Well, the money. It's the, the money is, is the benefit. Yeah, but and so many guys, I, get, well, I, I told myself, when I get out, I'm not going to be about guns. You know, I'm not going to be about marksmanship training, you know, rifle and pistol training. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to teach police officers how to survive. Uh, I'm not going to, no more guns and bombs for me. It's going to be, you know, a desk, desk job, which I did for about 16 years years but well i mean i had a desk i just didn't go to it very often <laughs> right. well and, and you did the away. trafficking too though i mean you didn't yeah. just sit down yeah i started trafficking um here at the request of a guy that was running a. she was trying to get a, a non-profit up and running uh and he had he he did it revert he did it kind of backwards from how most people do things i think but it's it's the smarter way like he, he made sure he had all the tax problems worked out before he even set, set a guy on the street. He had the finance. He made sure the finances were could support what we were going to do. You know, he could stay ahead X number of months based on his burn rate. And he did all the no fun stuff that, that gets you uh, in the end. You know, now all of a sudden I'm guilty of three crimes because... George, you can't like wrap the guy's, tie the guy's hand behind his back and throw in your car. You can't do that. That's kidnapping. Like, well, well, shit, you know, well, how do we catch these guys? He goes, I don't know. That's why you're here. And so he gave me time. He gave me uh, whatever I asked for, but mostly he just gave me time. And uh, I went out the first day without a clue and came back. A few weeks later, with a with methodology on how to on how to locate a pimp, a specific pimp, and it and it works. It works. It doesn't happen fast. It's not like I'll be back in an hour. It might take days, maybe a week, but I can I can find him. And even a year after I um, quit that job there, they contacted me and said that they had a guy in New Mexico and. They believe he's holding a girl in a motel, etc. Here's here's the ad from adult media that she that she puts out. And he gave me the ad and I said, All right, got it. And I thought it, it they gave it to me on Saturday. I thought about it on Sunday. I deployed on Monday and I had everything I needed in ninety minutes. I had a picture of the pimp, a picture of the female, the cars, the license plates. And gave it to law enforcement. They said, whoa, this is all we need. 
We don't need your any more of your assistance. That's uh, that's amazing. But it's once again something that you wanted to do. You picked it up. You drove forward and did it. You know, oh, at a hundred percent. Yeah, it was great. I would just, I'd spend twelve, fourteen hours of just. I mean, I'd wake up, walk, take the one step to my desk, you know, work seventy five percent of my work on a computer, then twenty five percent out on the street. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all, all prepared out on the street know what I'm looking for and uh, and finally crash at night, take that step to the bed, fall in it and sleep. <laughs> the last thing that I want to ask you about is uh, the chapter that kind of, it really stood out to me and that's uh, black days and white nights. Mm-hmm. First, I want to ask you about how you wrote it because it wasn't, it wasn't how a person normally would talk about, the pain that they're having, the problems that they're having. You wrote it as a conversation and it takes a minute to catch on to it. And then when you do, you see what's actually going on. And to me, it's the darkest and the chapter that has the most promise in it because you see both sides of George. So yeah, can we talk about it? Cause I think it is an amazing chapter. It's, it's probably, you know, not story wise. It's the best chapter in the book. Well, thank you. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a it's a matter of fact writing that that chapter. I mean, because I I I went through it. You know, I went through it. I know what happens now. I know what it's like. And uh, there's, I'll piss a bunch of people off, but there's no light at the tunnel. There's no light at the end of the tunnel, or at least there wasn't for me. And and all those things about, you know kissing your family goodbye for the last time. It's like that, there was none of that. They didn't exist at my point where I was at. They didn't exist. I wasn't thinking about them. You know, and the old dark prince was telling me, what's the point? You're just going to agonize yourself, you know, to the bottom or just going to get on with it. You know, now it's just a mission to take care of it. And I did it the, the best way I could with how much time I had, which, which, which was none because I just got in my car and drove to, you know, like the most, uh, serene spot, quiet, out of the way place that I could think of that, that wasn't very far away. Cause I wasn't about driving some hours, you know, I was right. about getting, getting it done. And, uh, I executed my plan and, and it failed and I have no idea why. Well, I think it goes back to that thing that we've talked about this whole conversation, George. Everything seems to turn out for you, for whatever reason. That woman coming up and finding you. But I think that more than anything, that showed you that you can help other people. And I think you have helped other people. Not in the sense of, or maybe in the sense of, where you're talking to them about the problems that they're having. But you have carried so many guys' legacies forward for people that would never understand, their kids that would never know about them, that were infants whenever they were lost, uh, people that wouldn't know their stories, family members. It's it is, it's astronomical to believe, you know, the the effort that has gone into this book and these guys' stories that you have told so lovingly, so reverently, in this book. 
Um, I think that you have helped more people than you could possibly ever even know, George. You've carried legacies forward that might never have seen the light of day. And I think that people owe you a huge debt of gratitude for that. It, it's an amazing book. You're an amazing man. And I'm so glad that you came on here. Well, I appreciate you very much. And I enjoyed your line of questioning. But there were some good questions. And clearly, you read that book carefully. Because... I mean, it's obvious that you read that book. So that's very flattering. Well, it, it, it's an amazing book. You you do amazing work, George. You know, I, I only hope that more people can read this book and learn this legacy because I think of, of all the special forces, everyone's heard of Navy SEALs, everyone's heard of special forces, everyone's heard of Rangers. People have heard of Delta, but they don't know the stories behind them. And the way that you've taken these stories and put them out for people to understand the human behind the soldier is absolutely phenomenal. Thank you. Well, I think that's going to be it for the show tonight. Let's talk real quick about where they can get your book and where they can see some more of you, George. Oh, um, I've, I've got a, an order of paperbacks that my staff is um, working with Amazon to get that on Amazon. And that, of course, will be the easiest way. But, I mean, right now I've got 500 copies of the book in my garage, you know, that are going to go in increments to to uh, Amazon. But in the interim, if, uh, some, if somebody wants to buy the book, they can work directly with her and she can, she can work the payment with them and uh, get the book to them very quickly. And her, her name is Cynthia. She's actually my oldest daughter. She was also key in getting the book completed. And her phone number is area code 505-918-0019. And that, that's all they could, they could text her. They don't have to talk to her if they don't want to. But she works with uh, Cash App, Venmo, Zella, PayPal. I think those are four that she threw at me there. And um, yeah, so she's willing to do that until we get these th things moving on Amazon. Then it'll be a piece of cake. Yeah, uh, that's how I got my book was through her. And she was absolutely fantastic about it. She had it to me within like two or three days of me calling her and um, telling her it worked quick. And I got to tell you, the, the paperback, I'm almost glad that I didn't get the hardback because the paperback is absolutely fantastic. The wrapping on it, the feel of it, the photos yeah. inside is absolutely yeah. great. I was so shocked that they did all those photos in color. They weren't supposed to. Yeah, it, it's great. And and I love the way that the, the, the book cover itself is a special kind of material. That's, that's it's Sam Foster in Somalia. <clears throat> yeah, well, and I'm talking about the materials that were actually the, the actual materials uh, on the book. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, those, those are amazing. But all those stories that you're talking about in Somalia, Black Hawk Down, all those are in there. Uh, you can, of course, reach it at the phone number, like he said, with his oldest daughter, Cynthia. 
Uh, or you can go to georgehand.org. That's G-E-O-R-G-E-H-A-N-D.org, georgehand.org. You can see all about George. You can read about the book on there. You can read reviews that are on there. And you can just learn more about George, see some of the articles that he's written. But if you want to get the book, I'll put links to it so that you guys can pick it up there. And also when the Amazon link comes out, we'll put that back on the group too so that people can see how to go to Amazon and get it. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at DTD underscore podcast, on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and on YouTube at the DTD podcast. Remember guys, the best stories are true and you come here every week because we give them to you. That's George, I'm DJ, this has been the show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll catch you on the next one. See you guys. Thanks, DJ.